Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue to conform us into the likeness of your son, that you would do this for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. It's a really hard thing to watch. It's a really hard thing to watch when somebody who thinks they can do something but everybody else knows that they can't. <laughs> it's, ha- it's hard to see, it really is, you've seen it. You've seen the person who thinks that they have what it takes but in reality, they do not. And everybody knows it except for them. This is the gal who is a good athlete and is heading down the ski slope at 50 miles an hour, ready to hit that huge jump right off the side of the trail with all of the confidence in the world, even though she's never done it before. But everybody who is on the chairlift on the way up is watching her and going, she's going to (laughs) die. And sure enough... She hits the jump and her gear goes flying everywhere and she experiences what all skiers know to be the true yard sale. Everybody knew it was going to happen except for her. Or perhaps this is the guy who has been promoted to that management position at work because the powers that be see something that they like in him from a distance, but they've never actually seen the guy in action. They don't know what everybody else knows. He may be smart, he may be confident, but he really doesn't know how to work with people. And so now that he's in this management position managing people, he's full of confidence, probably because somewhere back there he was given the esteemed honor of being the captain of his peewee football team, or maybe he received a really great communications degree from an esteemed university, and the guy thinks that he has what it takes, But wow, it's really sad to see when somebody thinks they're sufficient, but they really aren't. And as a result, they crash and burn. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He was bringing to people throughout the known world a message of incredible freedom, of life-changing power, of significant demand. And some of the Corinthians were questioning his credentials to do so. They might be asking the question, is this one of those guys? Is this one of those guys that thinks he has what it takes? When all the while in reality, we all know that he doesn't. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he asks the question. He says, who is sufficient for these things? And Paul makes it a point then to address this kind of sufficiency. And he does so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And so I want to ask you to turn with me or follow along on the screen behind me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, this is what it says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? 
You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul asks the rhetorical question, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again, or do we need a letter of recommendation? And at first glance, the idea of self-acclamation is rather distasteful to us because nobody likes somebody who boasts about themselves. Nobody likes somebody who says, upon meeting you for the first time, well, this is what I've accomplished over the last number of years. Nobody likes that person. However, in the ancient world, during a time when you couldn't just Google somebody and figure out where they've been and what they've done, where you couldn't just pick up the phone and call across the country to see where that person has succeeded or failed, a letter of recommendation or even an element of self-commendation was a much more common form of introduction when you were meeting people, especially meeting people to do something important. But Paul knows these people. He's been with them before. And so, in essence, what he's saying is, has our relationship deteriorated so much that I have to introduce myself to you again? We know each other. We've talked about the most important things. Has our relationship gotten to the point where we need to start all over again? I mean, it was a sad state of affairs. So skeptical were some of the apostle that now all the way into the third chapter, he's still defending himself and his motives. However, this type of self-commendation is not the type of reintroduction that you might think. Because in verse 2, he says to them that you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Any proof that Paul's work among them is the work of God is found in the Corinthians themselves. The best possible letter of recommendation is not for me to tell you about what I can do or not do or what I've done or not done. The best possible letter of recommendation that God is really doing something through this Apostle Paul is to look at the people that he has been ministering to. People are the credentials. And their lives, he says, are to be known and read by everyone. Therefore, any question that they have about Paul's credentials would then naturally lead them to question their own existence as a community of God. I mean, if Paul is a false teacher and he was the one that formed them, then they're a false community. Not really following the Lord, but that's not the case. Because despite their flaws, and there were many, 
The work of God was evident among these people, and it was powerful. Friends, this is the way of Christian ministry, all Christian ministry, not just ministry of the apostles, but this is the work of ministry that even you are involved in. Every Christian, God does incredible work in people through people. God can do incredible work in hundreds or thousands of people in the lives of those, and he can do it through you, each and every one of you. When you invest your time and effort and energy into men and women and boys and girls for their knowledge of and relationship with God through faith in Jesus, that leads to them following him with their lives and you, as a result, find incredible joy and purpose and commendation that God gives and that is that type of commendation is better than anything else that you can receive in this life other than your own salvation. Why is that? Because when you read the New Testament and when you follow the Lord for any amount of time and you begin to serve him, even with a small level of consistency, a truth for reality emerges and the truth is this. You begin to see That other than God himself and his glory, that the most important thing in this life is people. It's not stuff. It's people. It's not your bank account. It's people. It's not your idea of success. It's people. It's not your recreation. It's people. And it's not your reputation. It's people. People are what is most valuable to God and people are what will give you the most joy as you serve God by investing in them. Now, that sounds pretty good. But why doesn't it feel that way to me? I mean, after all, if we all truly believe that, if it felt that way to us, then we would all be a lot more others-centered than we are. And most of us struggle with some level of self-centeredness. So why is that? Why doesn't it feel like people are going to give me the greatest joy as I invest in them? Because people are hard, man. People are really hard. Because when you invest in people... You can't control what might happen. And some of us have become very good at being able to control our environments and what does and doesn't happen to a certain extent. And furthermore, we live in a culture right now that wants results immediately for the things that we invest our time and energy into. But it's amazing how long it takes people to change. And so we're constantly let down. It doesn't feel like people are going to give me a great joy when I invest in them and I see no return on that investment, sometimes for years even. I think back to the time when I was in middle school or the beginning of high school and I really cared the most about three things. Basketball, girls, and my grades. And as a result, I was reasonably good at basketball Not very good with girls. 
and reasonably good with my grades. And I didn't care a lot about my relationship with God, at least not yet. I went to church as part of a Christian family, went to Sunday school, went to youth group, and if you were to ask the number of Sunday school teachers over the course of my upbringing, if in real time they thought that was a good investment into me, or if you had asked my number of youth leaders over the course of my upbringing, whether that was Tracy Harrington or Jason Berry or later Alan Kenny, if they saw evidence of God's work in my life, they probably would have said something like, I don't know if that was a good investment of my time. I probably could have done something different. I'm not sure if it was worth it. Not knowing that years later, God would use the foundation that they laid to change my life as I became passionate about serving God by ministering to other people. And that story is not in any way, shape, or form unique with me. It's the story of many of you. It takes time. Some of you might feel today like, I don't want to invest in people because it's too uncertain and I can't control the situation. Some of you say, I don't want to invest in people because I'm not patient enough for the results. But if that's you, you need to know, if you are in that type of person living an incomplete Christian life, where you are just receiving what other people minister to you, but not serving God by serving or investing in other people in ways that you are tangibly able to do so, if you want to live that kind of incomplete life, then you're going to miss out on the immense joy that comes from seeing a 20-year-old man in the baptismal reflecting upon his church family his Sunday school teachers who said, I don't know if that kid's going to make it. But knowing that they had a part as he is faithful and passionately following Jesus today. You're going to miss out if you hear that testimony of joy of a marriage that is saved because you sat with that wife who was struggling and had coffee and encouraged her and reminded her of the truths of God and cried with her and prayed with her. And God used that to save that family. You're going to miss out at the expression of joy and confidence that somebody has in God because you walked with them through grief after they lost a loved one. Because people, <laughs> people, other than God's glory, people are the most valuable thing to God. And so Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. And some of you say, well, it sounds good and I understand the obstacles, but the biggest obstacle is this. I'm not sufficient for that kind of work. I mean, you're talking about life-changing, eternity-altering realities here. 
I'm not sufficient for that kind of work. I don't want to be like the guy that thinks he has it all together, but then everybody knows that's not the case. And we'll, obturn, we'll return to that objection in a minute. But first look with me at the letter of Jesus, verse 3. First, we saw Paul's letter of recommendation being people, and verse 3 points us to the letter of the Lord Jesus. It says this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Paul is not the author of this letter of recommendation. He's merely the mailman. Jesus himself authors the change that happens in the lives of those people at Corinth and the lives of the people that you come in contact with today. And this letter has some defining characteristics about it. It is written by the Spirit of God and it's written on the tablet, it says, of the human heart. Hundreds of years earlier, God wrote on some tablets. And the prophet Ezekiel foretold of a time when God would do through Jesus something that he had not done earlier. He would contrast the writing that God had done from tablets to the tablets of the heart. In the Old Testament law, we see that God wrote on stone tablets. Exodus chapter 31 tells us about this. In verse 18, it highlights this. It says, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the testimony. The tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And the law of the Old Testament brought about an external change in the lives of people but it could not bring about an internal change of the heart. Only God's spirit can do that. And so Ezekiel prophesied about what would come. And this is what he said in Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. He said, I will give them, thus says the Lord, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And again in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A new heart. That's the promise of God. The biblical concept of the heart in the Old Testament, the heart is the place that expresses the core of who we are as a person. The heart is the place where desires and passions and deliberation all occur. To change a person, you had to change their heart. Imagine with me that you're out on a hike as one author writes in a book that you're out on a hike on a beautiful spring day and you come across a creek and there's something wrong with this picture. You look at the creek and you notice that someone has dumped trash into the stream. And judging by some of the empty soda cans, this trash has been there a while and there's this ugly film that's over the top of the water. You can't just leave it as you found it because your conscience wouldn't allow you. And so you stoop down and you begin to gather the trash to clean it up. 
And it actually takes a lot longer than you thought, several hours in fact, before you begin to see the difference and it's just amazing to you how much junk that there is there. You sit back, you rest for a moment, you realize that you're gonna have to keep returning each day until this site is truly clean. But when you come back the next day, it's as if your work had been undone. In fact, there's more trash than there was before. It's like somehow the trash had bred overnight. And you think about the unlikelihood of somebody coming to this obscure spot and dumping their trash overnight in just a couple of hours that you had been absent. And so as you sit there and you think about how this is happening and what you're going to do, something doesn't smell quite right. So you begin to follow the creek upstream. And sure enough, you come to a place where somebody has dumped a bunch of garbage and it's been there for years. It's emptying into the passing creek. Your cleaning job only opened up a gap for more stuff to fill. So you could go and clean every day. But if you want the creek to be clean, that means you need to go directly to the source and deal with what is there. And that's an apt picture of the heart. Because the way that we live, <laughs> we can make a mess of things in a hurry through our sin. And then we can try and try and try to clean it up. We can convince ourselves to change our attitudes. We can constantly challenge our own motives. Our behavior can change for a while, but it doesn't last. Because all of those things, all those external things actually flow from the heart. And so if you want to be a different person, if you want to be a person with a genuine relationship with God, if you want to be a person who wants to do what God wants you to do instead of begrudgingly following the rules, <laughs> you need a new heart. And that's exactly what God promises. In verses four through six, Paul returns to the question of the day. Who is sufficient for such things? Who can create a new heart in somebody? Who can engage with a man or a woman or a boy or a girl in such a fashion that their life is so radically changed that a new heart comes out and their actions going forward are different? Who can make such a compelling letter of recommendation? Some of you might ask that question. And you might say, God, I know I'm supposed to invest in people, but I'm not sufficient to do this type of thing in people's lives. And if you lack confidence to approach other people in that way to accomplish that kind of thing, then you're right. <laughs> and in fact, you join Paul in his lack of confidence to do that in and of himself. And it's interesting to note that because today we live in a culture with almost no lack of confidence. There are people everywhere that know what you should do or how you should do it or, or they think they know even how you should think along the way. Writing in the Harvard Business Review, Thomas Chamorro 
Przmuzik, who's a CEO and business professor, had some surprising conclusions about self-confidence and leadership. He says this. He says there's no bigger cliche in business psychology than the idea that high self-confidence is the key to career success. It's time to debunk this myth. In fact, he says, low self-confidence is more likely to make you successful. After many years of researching and consulting on talent, I've come to the conclusion that self-confidence is only helpful when it's low. Sure, extremely low self-confidence is not helpful. It inhibits performance by inducing fear, worry, and stress. It may drive people to give up sooner or later. But just low enough confidence can help you in at least three ways. Lower self-confidence makes you pay attention (laughs) to negative feedback or be self-critical in a good way. Lower self-confidence can motivate you to work harder and to prepare more. Lower self-confidence reduces the chances of coming across as arrogant or deluded. And of course, as Christians, we could add a fourth and most important benefit of a lower self-confidence. If your self-confidence is low to accomplish such things, then you must place your confidence somewhere else. You place it with the living God. Christians can agree with the article's conclusion that says, in brief, if you are serious about your goals, low enough self-confidence can be your biggest ally to accomplish them. It is therefore tempted to debunk the myth. High self-confidence isn't a blessing and low self-confidence is not a curse. In fact, it's the other way around. Here's the reality. You want to do something for God? You want to invest in somebody's life in a way that makes a real difference? You're not sufficient for that. (laughs) And neither am I. And neither is Paul. But God is. And he wants to do it through you. And when you invest yourself in people for the sake of their knowledge of or relationship with God, it is for their good, for your joy, and for his glory. And God does this, Paul says, because two realities are present. There is a superiority of the new covenant that we have today in Jesus, and there is a superiority of the Holy Spirit. And so as he concludes, let's move down that line, the superiority of the new covenant in Jesus is able to do something that the old covenant in the law of Moses was unable to do. As we previously mentioned, the Old Testament law was one in which uh, conformity or outward conformity to God's ways were demanded. And as a result, outward change was the result. And the law displayed the holiness of God It displayed the perfect standard of God. It helped people to get to know God. But as person after person, tribe after tribe, year after year, decade after decade, said, God, your way is what we will do, they failed. God, we want to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, they failed. God, we will act the way you want us to act, and they failed. 
But the new covenant that was promised has a greater hope attached to it. That new covenant is talked about in Jeremiah 31. It says this. Behold, God says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. A covenant sets the boundaries of a relationship. How people will relate to God and how God will relate to them. And here God promises that he will help all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, who want to obey him, he will help them to do so. Through Jesus he does five things. He writes his law on our hearts. God, this this is amazing. The finger of God that wrote on the stone tablets presses in upon you. (laughs) And the core of who you are wanting to do the core of what God desires of you. Secondly, God promises to make those who have faith into his people. I will be their God. They will be my people. This is an identity. Changes your identity into a people. A people with a head, God himself. A people who have blessings attached to them. A people who have a sense of security because they have God over them. A people who have an eternal promise and future and glory. Thirdly, and does that through Jesus. Thirdly, He allows us to know him, to truly know God, not to know about him, not to think that he's standing back as the puppet master over human history or that he's standing over here and has created and then moved on to the next thing, but to know God. And when you know him, you begin to understand that you trust him. And when you trust him, the more you begin to love him and the more you feel and sense and experience that not only do you know him, but he knows you. In fact, he knows you better than you know you. And that's amazing. The fourth thing that he does in this covenant is he forgives us our sin or our iniquity, it says, and that's related to the fifth thing is that he remembers our sins no more, which means that God doesn't hold our sins against us if we've put our faith in Jesus to forgive them. If you want to experience relief from that burden that you carry of your sin, if you want to experience relief from the fear that any person who acknowledges God has, that God is going to hold these things against me and I'm just waiting for the day when he cashes that check and it all comes pouring down upon me. 
People live in that fear every day. Some of us live in that fear today. But God says, I will remember your sin no more under this new covenant. I will not hold it against you. It is no longer attached to you. It is left at the cross. Jesus paid for it so you don't have to. And as a result, there's an obedience and a love that comes in following him that you will want to do the things that he wants you to do. That's the nature of the new covenant. The new covenant makes you and me sufficient to share these things because it is greater than the old covenant. When you talk about sharing and investing in people for the sake of their relationship with God or their knowledge of God, it's not do this and don't do that. It's let me tell you about how God enters into your life and changes you from the inside out. Paul points us to the fact that sufficiency for ministry comes from the credentials of Christ and the empowering of the Spirit. The credentials of Christ and the empowering of the Spirit makes you and me sufficient for this type of work. The last thing that he says is that there's a superiority of the Holy Spirit that is greater than the letter of the law. The letter kills, verse six, the spirit gives life. The judgment of the law is replaced by the life that is found in the spirit. God does this. In the Old Testament, back there, God puts his finger on the tablet of the law and the letters are there. But in the New Testament and on to today, right here, God puts his finger on your heart and changes you from the inside out. And the spirit is the one that accomplishes this work. And so just listen to some of the ways the Spirit is described in the life of those who put their faith in Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1.14 says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Or Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Or Galatians 5, 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Or Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Or Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit makes the worker sufficient because the Spirit is better than the law. And so friends, Paul tells the Corinthians, he is in no way sufficient for such a work as this, to be an agent of the gospel who forgives sins, provides hope, and gives life. Who is sufficient for such things? Nobody. At least not on their own. But he is indeed sufficient, and you are too, 
because you were called by God to this work and the sufficiency for ministry comes from the credentials of Christ and the empowering of the Spirit. You know, at the beginning of our time together, we talked about sufficiency and how sad it is when someone thinks that they're sufficient for a task, but they really aren't. <laughs> it's hard to watch. You want to know what's even sadder? Even harder to watch? Is that when someone has the credentials and sufficiency for a task, but they don't act upon it. That's hard to watch. I wonder if that's you. None of us have the credentials of Paul and the credentials for this type of work, life-changing work, is not found in a seminary degree. <laughs> it's not found in a type A personality. It's not found in charisma. It's not found in intelligence. The credentials for the work of life changing, eternal, destiny, altering, hope, giving, gospel of Jesus Christ work. The credentials for that kind of work come from Christ alone and the empowering of his spirit. And God has made you sufficient for this work and that's absolutely incredible. So don't waste it. For your joy, <laughs> for their good, for God's glory. Don't waste it. Because it's hard to watch someone who thinks they're sufficient, but everybody knows they aren't. <laughs> it's even harder to watch people who actually are sufficient and they do nothing. You have the credentials for gospel work. And this type of work is not uniform to all of you. I can't prescribe for you exactly what that looks like for you to invest in another person because each of you are different. Your circumstances are different. The application is going to be different. But to say, first of all, the work is worth it, God calls me to it, and people are the most valuable is the starting point. You have the credentials for gospel work. Now you just have to go do it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that for many of us, we were in the place of feeling the weight and the burden of having our sins held against us, of fear, of difficulty, and that the gospel of Jesus, the word of relief, the forgiveness of sins, washes over us like a cold shower on a hot day. And there might be some that want that forgiveness today, and so we pray Lord, come now. Father, we recognize that the time is fleeting, that the work of saving souls is something that only you can do and there is an urgency attached to it and that you call every single one of us who call Jesus our Savior to be a part of that work, that in and of ourselves we have nothing to bring and to give but that you credential us because the new covenant is better and because the spirit is powerful. And so we pray, come. 
Help us this day to invest ourselves in the things of greatest consequence and eternal joy. Amen.